Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. And right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we'll see if flapper pie is our latest heritage favorite and do a preview review of a dessert that's assembled, not baked, and may help us clean out our pantries as the weather heats up, a strawberry ice cream charlotte. Finally, we'll have a fun roundup of some listeners' favorites directly from our online community. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, I'd like to tell you about a new discovery I've had with oatmeal cookies. I would love to hear your oatmeal cookie discovery. <laughs> well, you know how your favorite brownie is that on-the-fence brownie? Oh. Um, and I think it's, what, half chewy and half cakey? Or Oh, it's exactly right. Yeah, it's King Arthur Flowers on the fence, and it's the perfect okay. blend of chewy and cakey. Exactly. Okay. My issue with oatmeal cookies has always been that they're either – too crisp and thin yeah. or too chewy and dense. Okay. My neighbor brought over a batch of cookies midweek. Mm. She told me they were healthy, which I thought, <laughs> great. Mm. <laughs> I know. That often leads you to go, okay, I'm not sure I'm really going to like this or, you know, I might break my tooth on this one. <gasps> but I took a bite into it and it was this perfect blend of crispy and chewy. <gasps> I texted her later and said, hey, what was the name of that cookie you sent me? And she said, it's the crispy, chewy oatmeal cookie. <laughs> How perfect. Guess what the recipe source was. Is it King Arthur flour? No, it is Weight Watchers. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. And that is not a place I would go to for recipes, mainly because I tend to find recipes that are usually designed to be healthy or low fat or low sugar, mm -hmm. not to be to my liking. And I'd rather just have a smaller amount of the genuine thing. Okay. But this particular recipe doesn't have any, you know, odd ingredients or, I don't know, any fake substitutions. Like, I shouldn't say fake, but... Yeah, artificial stuff, right. Or yeah. even like the applesauce instead of butter. It doesn't do any of that. Okay. I think what it does is it just cuts down on the quantities. Okay. And so it's then up to you to practice portion control. <laughs> Sure, sure, yes. But I'll post a link to that in our show notes. I just found it to be a delightful cookie. And for anyone who, like me, has struggled with finding the perfect oatmeal cookie, I think this one might be a winner. So do you see any clues in the ingredients as to why it's able to walk the line so perfectly? Well, it has brown sugar and regular white sugar. Mm -hmm. It does have butter, but it only has one egg. Mm-hmm. All the other ingredients are, mm, I don't know, smaller for lack of a better term. Like it's a cup and a half of oats and okay. three quarters a cup of flour. Okay. I don't make oatmeal cookies a lot, so I don't know how to compare it to, say, a regular oatmeal cookie recipe. Yeah. It's so funny that you say this because in that same King Arthur flour cookie companion from which my On the Fence brownies comes, they do that with almost all of the cookies, including oatmeal. So, you know, they'll go from the very crisp, very thin 
to the very chewy. So okay, there's such a range of preferences. I think I would fall with you on the right in the middle. I like kind of a snap, but then I also like a little bit of that molassesy chew. So I'm going to check it out. Thank you. We'll take recipes wherever we get them, right? The soap mm-hmm. lady, Weight Watchers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot about the soap lady. Yeah, yeah that was a good was one. was a good one. <laughs> Hey, Andrea, I have two clutter clearing tips. One of our 20 for 20 was to kind of try and keep our pantries organized and get rid of things that were no longer serving us. Yeah. I have two. Now, these may seem very basic, but they're working for me, so I wanted to pass them along. Yeah, let's hear it. The first one comes because during all of the quarantine period, we were trying to support some local food places around London and having some meals delivered a few times a week. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, they would all show up in these plastic containers. And I am such a frugal gal that throwing things out or recycling things like that, it just, I can't do it. I have to think of another thing to do with them. Mm -hmm. They are the perfect size. I have made little spice kits in my pantry. I don't know if you remember my pantry here, Andrea, but it's very tall and I'm not. Yes. (laughs) Trying to like look to the back of the shelf, you know, where's the cinnamon? Where's the nutmeg? It's very hard for me without literally getting out a stool. Right. So now what I've done is just group all of these like spices or extracts together in these little kits. So I just pull out the little bin. For example, I have one that has my cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, ginger allspice. Oh, what a great idea. I have one with my extract. So my vanilla, my almond, my orange blossom water. I have like an Italian kit, my basil, thyme, oregano, rosemary. You know, you get the idea. It's just spices or things that you would necessarily need to use all together. And you could do this with any kind of basket or little container. But I'm just so thrilled every time I open my cupboards now because I see them and I'm also giving these little containers a new life. I love that idea. I have my spices on a rack in my pantry. Yes. And I try to do a very similar thing of organizing by category. So I'll have all of my baking spices on one row and all of my savory spices on one row. I have to tell you the one that jumps around and so of course I can never put my fingers on it is my ground ginger. Yes, I was just going to guess. I make a lot of curries and I use it in that and then yep, it often comes up in my baking so then I'll put it back in my baking row and so it's kind of funny when you start making these kits. There's some things that just are so clear cut to me Yeah, and then it's really interesting to see which things start to cross over. Yeah, exactly. The next little tip, Andrea, Do you know about command hooks? I am a new convert to the command hook. It's so funny you bring this up. I (laughs) heard about command hooks from a friend of mine a couple of years ago, and she told me that her daughter used them to hang what I call fairy lights in her room. You know, those little twinkle lights? Yeah. mm -hmm. And so I bought a big pack of them, and I gave them to my daughter along with the fairy lights. I think that was a holiday present for her one year. And it was only this last week that she finally put those up using those command hooks. And it was so easy. Yes. You know, especially for kids who want to decorate their room. That way you don't have a bunch of nails in the wall and holes in the wall. And I just think they're fabulous. Yeah. So if you're not familiar with these, they're a plastic hook and they have an adhesive backing. But the magic of the command hook is that they're very strong. And also they will not hurt your wall or whatever surface you put them on so you know don't take my word for that do what you're comfortable with caveat but yeah (laughs) so here is my new use for command hooks i have some pot holders that i need all the time 
I never know where to put them. If I put them in the drawer, I'm always like digging them out at the last minute. They do have a magnet on them, but sticking them on top of the oven, on the front of the oven, they're always just kind of in the way. Mm -hmm. I just put a command hook on the wall closest to my oven. Boom. Done. You know, sometimes it's just the simplest things that give you the biggest thrill. I always think it's fun when I stay in an Airbnb to notice where does my eye or my hand immediately go to when I'm in an unfamiliar kitchen? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that tells me then, well, this is where this item should be. Exactly. It's where it wants to live. No matter what kitchen I'm in, yes, if I reach for the drawer next to the stove for the potholders, I should put it there. If I reach for the wall right above it, then I should put it there. Yeah. I don't have a problem with my potholder storage, but we have a potholder dilemma in my household. And I think it's because my husband and I's hands are such different sizes. Oh, yeah, for coverage. Yeah, so I love, it's almost like a, you know, the full-on oven mitt. Right. And then there's some that cover, let's say, just your palm. Mm-hmm. And then there's some that I got at the Japanese dollar store that are about half the size of that. You put your fingers and your thumb into it, and it's almost like, looks like little crab claws or something. I'm probably not describing it well. I'll have to post a picture. No, I get it. It's half the size. Yes. If the full size was like a square, this would be almost rectangular because like if you cut the square in half. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, and this it. is absolutely perfect size for oh. me. And it's too small for my husband. And so yeah. he always burns his hand. So he likes those big, huge honking pot holders. <laughs> and I can't stand those because there's so much fabric and material, I feel like I can't even get my hand yeah, too much. to the actual pot. Yeah. Yeah. Potholder storage is not our issue, but the correct potholder continues to be a quest for me. Well, may I suggest putting up his and hers command hooks and then I know. <laughs> no more dilemma. Hey, that's not a bad idea. I yeah. can have a wooden wooden post right next to my stove. Maybe I'll do that. Yeah. You know, it looks so tidy and neat too. I just love it. Anyway, there are two 20 for 20 clutter clearing tips. I love it. And I am going to ask listeners for some potholder recommendations now that we've discussed this, because I bet there's something newfangled and fabulous that I just have never thought to buy or try. Potholder technology is just always changing. (laughs) (laughs) Up this week, we made a flapper pie. It came from all recipes. We talked about this pie back in episode 177, that it falls into the category of what we would call a desperation pie or a pantry pie meaning it uses very few ingredients and most of them you should have in your pantry. So Stefan, why don't you go ahead and get us started and tell us how this pie turned out for you. Yeah, and I guess we should say off the bat too that flapper pie is kind of a whimsical name for what's essentially a vanilla cream pie with a meringue topping. Yes. (laughs) And you know, Andrea, last week we talked about the heritage of this and that it comes from the Canadian Plains, but I searched high and low, and I still couldn't really figure out why they called it flapper pie other than they just renamed it in the 1920s because that's the era of the flappers. I looked around a little bit, too, and I found some interesting articles from some people who grew up in Canada who talked about how their grandmothers made this pie and how they were so excited to occasionally see it on a restaurant or diner menu, but I didn't see a description of why it was called flapper either. If we have any Canadian listeners or others out there who might know, that would just be an interesting thing to tell us. Okay, Andrea, I took a page from your playbook this week, and instead of one nine-inch deep dish pie, which is what this will make, I halved this recipe. The week that I made this, I had not one but two birthdays in my house, still not having a lot of people over or sharing food, and I just thought, let's downsize this pie this week. 
I made it in my mini King Arthur flower 6 inch, which I love to do. And for the most part, this was a very easy recipe to have, including the crust, which is a graham cracker crust. I used rich tea biscuits, which is about the closest substitute I can find. Then you add your white sugar, some melted butter, and a tablespoon, or in my case, half, of ground cinnamon. Andrea, I really liked that addition. I would have used cinnamon graham crackers if that had been an option too. I would have used cinnamon graham crackers. I would have used regular graham crackers, but alas, neither was in my pantry, even though I thought they were. What I found instead was our dearly beloved Lotus Biscoff cookies. Well, it's perfect. I did. I thought, oh, that's perfect. So I omitted the cinnamon. Right. Because I felt like those already have enough of a good spice kick to them. I didn't need to add any more. Like you, I cut down on the recipe size. I decided to cut it in thirds because it had three cups of milk and three eggs. And so in my Ah. mind, to make the math simpler, I thought, ugh. Especially with eggs. Yep. It's so much easier to cut three eggs down to one egg. So I also made mine in a six-inch pie plate, but it's very shallow. It's six inches across the top diameter. Mm. The base is more like four and a half inches. Okay. Yeah. For that filling, as you just said, there was some milk, sugar, cornstarch, three egg yolks, and a teaspoon of vanilla extract. So I halved all of those ingredients. And as you just mentioned... Having eggs is a little bit ridiculous. Here's what I did. I measured the egg in my scale, and then I knew exactly how much the yolk weighed and how much the white weighed and just took half of that. One and a half eggs. You heard us talk last week when we introduced our mini segment on custard and meringue. This custard was very straightforward. Saucepan custard, you heated up your milk, and then in another bowl you had your sugar, cornstarch, egg yolks, and vanilla. You went ahead and tempered that put it all back in the saucepan until it thickened and whisked constantly while it did that. Andrea, it may have been because I messed around with the proportions here, but mine just would not thicken to the point I thought it should have. It was thickening definitely, but it wasn't thickening enough. So I ended up adding a little bit more cornstarch, another tablespoon. I think it still could have benefited from a bit more because even after it was chilled, it was just a little loose. Again, very minor, but... If I played around with this again, I might keep a closer eye on that thickness. Okay. I did not have that problem. I am not sure my math is totally correct, so I don't even want to share my numbers. But I did do the math to translate a quarter cup of cornstarch divided by three. Yeah. And a half a cup of sugar divided by three. The three cups of milk, that was easy. That just turned into one cup of milk and, of course, one egg yolk. Right. And I didn't have any problem. It thickened quite nicely. And it said two to three minutes. I stopped at two and I thought, I think it could go just a little bit longer. Okay. My test for is custard thick enough? And I've always done this with ice cream. So I do it with everything that's custard is I use a wooden spoon and I'll lift it out and run my finger or something along the back of the spoon. And I look for that divot to stay as opposed to, you know, just immediately becoming filled. Yes, exactly. Two minutes, it was still pretty runny. At three minutes, it was nice and thick. Yeah. And so I just, you know, poured it right into my Lotus Biscoff crust at that point with no problem. Okay. And you know, Andrea, the other thing I did taking another tip from your book last week, (laughs) I thought this is a vanilla cream pie. It has a cinnamon graham cracker crust, but there's really no other 
hearty flavor going on here. So I pumped my vanilla up and I don't even know if I measured. I was just like, Andrea Ballard, sprinkle it in. And you know, it's a vanilla cream pie. Let's have some real vanilla flavor here. And I was really happy I did. I thought back after we recorded that episode where I said I didn't measure. And I thought, I, I'm just going to sound like a, such a, a nutball. But I, I want to defend myself a little bit. When I say I don't measure, what I mean is I don't you know, pull out a measuring spoon and measure. But what I do a lot is the lid to my vanilla, I feel, is about a teaspoon. <laughs> Yeah. So, no, I think that's been proven. Okay. I do. Yeah. I do. I, and I think I even saw that on like Martha Stewart okay. once or something. So, so yeah, yeah, legit. It's it's true. Okay. So if something is, mm-hmm. you know, one teaspoon of vanilla, I'm not just dumping because of course a lot of times the vanilla that I buy has a really nice big hole at the top. Like if you just poured, you could end up dumping oh, sure. a lot of vanilla, vanilla in. So I pour from the bottle into the lid and then I turn the lid into the batter. So it, I am got it regulating. I'm just not measuring <laughs> in a teaspoon. <laughs> Okay. Does that sound better? Well, it does. It does. But you know what? I I just was sprinkling it on with abandon and it turned out great. So once your custard is nice and thick, you're going to scrape that into your graham cracker crust. And then you've got your meringue, which is those egg whites that you have separated. A little bit of sugar. Using a KitchenAid or an electric whisk here is easy. That's what I did. Get that up to stiff peaks. Put it over your warm custard so that there is no weeping or seepage later. And I went ahead and put mine under the broiler for a few minutes, just a very few. Watch it carefully. Turns nice and golden brown. And then we just stuck it in the fridge until after dinner. Andrea, how did your meringue and all of that jazz go? And this is the only part where cutting the recipe down might have been a touch of a problem. So I only had one egg white. Yeah. My KitchenAid, I have that professional one. And just the space between the bottom of the whisker and the bottom of the bowl, if you only have one egg white in, it's really not even touching it. I mean, I just didn't think I could do it in my KitchenAid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember for the pineapple upside down cake, my daughter helped me and she used our old-fashioned egg beater to make those egg whites frothy. Oh, yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if that will work to actually get medium peaks. And sure enough, it worked just fine, like a charm. It was so much fun. And you didn't even have to plug anything in. Nope, didn't have to plug anything in. Just use one of my small Pyrex bowls that has high sides but a smaller base and use that egg beater, added a little bit of sugar and made it nice and stiff. I believe this either the smaller portion because it was only one egg white or perhaps because I didn't do it in a KitchenAid, I didn't have as much volume as I normally would. You'll see when you see my pictures, my meringue didn't reach the edges of the pie. Okay. And I know a lot of times a recipe will tell you that's so important, you know, make sure you seal the edges and stuff. But number one, I think it's kind of nice for it not to reach the edge because then you get a hint as to what kind of pie it is. Okay. You know, if a pie is just completely covered with meringue, who knows what could be in there? I mean, you're just taking a real gamble when you cut into it. (laughs) I don't know why I said number one. That's pretty much it. I have no number two. (laughs) Well, you see that constantly. Like, it's going to shrink. It's going to weep. Yeah. It worked out fine. The other problem I have with that instruction a little bit is that I'm probably going to eat this pie so fast that, you know, it's not going to be that much of an issue. And that's exactly what happened here. This pie was really simple but really good and I would be very interested in making it full size again because my whole family really enjoyed it. I think that the cinnamon graham cracker was a really nice flavor addition with that vanilla. Again, those are really the only two strong flavors you have. Mm -hmm. I was very happy that I decided to put more vanilla flavoring in there. 
again, my only slight quibble was that I wished my custard had been firmer. Mm -hmm. And I think I must take at least a little bit of the blame for that, for messing around with proportion-wise. Yeah, I chilled mine for a couple of hours and it set up quite nicely. When I put my meringue on top, I tried to do what I believe it was listener Barb posted a picture in our Facebook group where she had this beautiful piped meringue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I don't have the right piping tips because I tried doing that and it was just sort of a mess. So I ended up sort of covering that up and and spreading it around. I also skipped the step to sprinkle it with the reserved crumbs because I didn't think that was going to be pretty. And I had that and I totally forgot. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, there you go. I love the flavor of it. I also thought it was nice and simple. You know, it kind of reminded me for some reason of that seed cake we made from Nigel Slater. Oh. I think that was back in, I don't know, episode 122 or something like that. Yeah, it was Literary Bakes Month. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think the reason it reminded me of it, it, again, it's such a simple recipe. Yeah. There's few ingredients. And when you taste it, your mouth doesn't explode with, you know, oh my gosh, there's a million flavors. What am I having here? This is so fabulous. Yeah. It's just very simple and yeah. easy mm-hmm. and comforting. And I think during this time, I found it to be quite delightful. So I definitely give the flapper pie a thumbs up. Yeah, comforting is a really good word. It was just kind of cozy and homey. And, you know, pie trends have come and gone, but I feel like flapper pie is just a heritage pie for a reason. It reminded me, Andrea, of our tapioca pudding. It had that really oh. nice vanilla flavor. Yes. yes. There's just something really cozy and warm about that. I really enjoyed this one too. Yeah, agreed. Well, Andrea, we just have a very quick preview of the final Bake This Month. And of course, we won't be reviewing it since we'll be on to our June shows next week. But it is also a heritage and 1920s dessert. And it's called a Strawberry Ice Cream Charlotte. This recipe comes from Taste of Home. Now, Andrea, we chose this one for a few reasons. Number one, Charlotte is an icebox cake. And as we learned earlier this month, anything related to electric refrigeration was really gaining popularity in the 1920s because home refrigeration was becoming possible. So icebox cakes were just really taking off very much in the public conscience. This recipe also uses something that we, I know I, still may have in our cupboards, and that is the ladyfingers <laughs> from the tiramisu we did back in Italian month. Yes, back when you bought, what, six packages of them? No, mine are By long accident. gone. <laughs> <laughs> They're nestled in there next to your wheat germ, I'm sure. Oh, almost gone. Update soon. So if you're not familiar with um, a Charlotte or an icebox cake, what you're going to do is line your 9-inch, and we also know that as a 23-centimeter, pan with the ladyfingers and then you're spreading kind of two layers of ice cream one ice cream one sorbet marshmallow cream and you know Andrea we have long said we were going to use the marshmallow cream from our merry marshmallows back in episode 154 here would be a great opportunity to make that again yes it's a really pretty assembled dessert it is heating up kind of everywhere right now. So if you are looking for something a little different, but something a little heritage to round out your month, I think giving this one a try would be really fun. I really love the addition of the strawberry sorbet in this recipe because, of course, ice cream cakes always have ice cream, but it's rare that you also see them with sorbet. I like that addition. Yeah, I think that's what makes it so pretty because it's like a layered look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So listeners, if you try this one, please let us know. Post on our Facebook, post on our Instagram, at Preheated Pod, with your pictures. It's really lovely. Nice summertime, no bake. That is the Strawberry Ice Cream Charlotte from Taste of Home.
And remember, we'll have a link to this recipe in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 178, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, for a few weeks now, we've been posting daily questions on our Facebook page, everything from what's your most used kitchen appliance to what's your favorite birthday cake? And in true preheater fashion, our community has chimed in with such fun, funny, heartfelt, and helpful answers. There were two conversational threads that really got a lot of people talking recently, so we thought in the spirit of our show's motto, Learning and Laughs, we'd highlight them. First up, learning with our listeners' favorite baking books. We and our community are often asked for cookbook recommendations, so we hope this is helpful whether you're a seasoned baker looking for a new title or newer to the kitchen and wondering where to start. First up, the classics. Listeners Rebecca, Jesse, and Jennifer all recommended Joy of Cooking. First published in 1931, this cookbook by St. Louis housewife Irma S. Rombauer, who originally self-published her masterpiece, has sold more than 18 million copies. And Andrea, I was interested to see that though many people call it the joy of cooking, it's actually just joy of cooking. Ah, well, moving on to another classic, our Roaring Twenties icon, Betty Crocker herself, was mentioned multiple times. Listeners Elizabeth, Dawn, Clark, and Amy all rely on one of the more than 15 versions of Betty's cookbooks that have been published since 1930. And Stefan, do you know something that we have in common with Betty? Besides our affinity for wearing pearls while baking? Yes. (laughs) Betty Crocker, voiced by actress Blanche Ingersoll, has the distinction of hosting the first on-air cookery school when the Betty Crocker Cooking School debuted on a Minneapolis radio station in 1924. This show was later syndicated by NBC and ran for three more decades. And also another reason to visit Minneapolis, they have a street called the Betty Crocker Drive preheated road trip. (laughs) Well, speaking of other icons in the kitchen, listener Amy recommends Julia Child's Baking with Julia, and listener Scotia loves Nigella Lawson's first baking book, How to Be a Domestic Goddess, which certainly has to be one of the best titles for a cookbook ever. And as is the case with many of Nigella's cookbooks, is an absolute joy to read as well as bake from. Many listeners called out the Cook's Illustrated, America's Test Kitchen, Cook's Country range of baking titles, including listeners Melanie, Katie, Jennifer, and Kim. I was happy to see several of my faves pop up in this thread. Listener Rebecca relies on King Arthur Flowers' all-purpose baking cookbook. Listener LeWolf loves Dory Greenspan's baking. And listeners Melinda and Karen recommended Brave Tart. Speaking of Dory Greenspan, I love the pistachio raspberry cookies from her cookies book, especially since they're naturally gluten-free. Ooh. Listener Melinda also suggested Better Homes and Gardens New Baking. As you heard us mention a few weeks ago, Better Homes and Gardens magazine also started in the 1920s and first published its iconic red plaid cookbook in 1930. This publication revolutionized how cookbooks were written and put together. For one thing, it was a three-ring binder, which would lay flat on the countertop and allow for pages to be taken in and out. But more importantly... Up until the 1930s, many cookbooks assumed a certain level of baking knowledge. For example, a recipe for blackberry pie might have read, bake two cups of blackberry fruit filling between two crusts, serve plain or with ice cream. (laughs) It went without saying that a baker would know how to make a pie crust, prepare the fruit, including sweetening and thickening it, how long to bake it, and at what temperature. 
But Better Homes and Gardens started a new style of writing that relied less on what the baker already knew and started teaching with actual measurements and simple-to-follow directions. We take that style of recipe writing for granted nowadays and laugh at the two- or three-sentence recipes found in vintage books, but we can thank BH&G for leading the way and helping many of us learn to cook and bake. Speaking of history, listener Rachel suggested Bell's Best, which is a treasured community compilation started by telecom pioneers of Mississippi in the 1980s. It has been reprinted 29 times and is marketed as a one-stop shop for all of your cooking needs. Stefan, you and I are fans of these types of community cookbooks, and so is listener Lindsay, who loves the cookbook produced by her Lutheran church. And listener Amy says she never starts baking without first checking her own family's recipe book. And then she moves on to volumes from the Magnolia Bakery or Dahlia Bakery. Listener Donna had a unique entry, Pie in the Sky, which is all about baking at altitude. Listener Jennifer loves Shauna Seaver's Midwest Made, which, of course, we're all eager to try after that unreal donut loaf in episode 174. Finally, listener Kim suggested a book called Rudiga Backbuchen, a Swedish cookbook that translates to checkered back book. And on Swedish online bookseller Bokus has a ton of five-star reviews and glowing words of praise for the only book you'll ever need. Well, now that we've tackled our learning, let's move on to some laughs. You know we celebrate our fails as much as our successes. So it was no surprise that preheaters had lots to say when we asked them to share their biggest baking mishaps. This was a hugely entertaining thread and especially (laughs) lovely to see everyone keeping their sense of humor. So do go back and find it on our Facebook page when you've had a fail yourself and just need some reassurance that we've all been there. We don't have time to read all of the stories, but here are a few in the listener's own words. Listener Aiden says, The infamous cornmeal basil cake. My then-boyfriend, now husband, and I were baking together a cornmeal cake I saw in a magazine. It included a small amount of dried basil. He misread the basil measurement, and we ended up adding an insane amount of dried basil. It was awful! On the bright side, that day I learned about the love of a parent for their child. (laughs) My dad insisted on eating a slice and complimenting it, even though it was absolutely disgusting. I threw the cake in the trash. You might want to avoid blueberries if our listeners are any indication. Listener Kate says she once made a green blueberry cake that tasted like soap. And listener Deborah (laughs) took her glass dish full of blueberry crunch out of the oven, set it on top of the stove, and heard a loud crack. Deborah says blueberry juice went into every crack and crevice of my stovetop. We've both been there, right, Andrea? Oh, sadly, yes. Listener Mary had a frozen dessert dilemma when she encountered an unexpected traffic jam while en route to her parents' house with a cherry ice cream cake. Mary says it was a melted, soggy mess when she arrived, but that her now husband performed hero's work as he managed to keep two pints of rapidly melting ice cream from spilling off the cake plate the whole drive over. (laughs) Clearly a man worth marrying. (laughs) I love this next one because it ends so mysteriously. Listener Katie says she spent an afternoon making chocolate raspberry tort and had set it in the garage to chill, only to have someone drop a lasagna pan on it. Katie says it still tasted great smooshed, but my question is, who's that mysterious someone that Katie has called out in all caps, and are they still enjoying her desserts after this mishap? (laughs) Many listeners shared stories of setting their pans, hot pads, little sisters, or entire kitchens on fire with their baking disasters. Now, we're not making light of kitchen safety. We are sharing these tips, though, in 
the spirit of hindsight being 2020 and the listener's own humor. Listener Sarah says, I invited friends over for brunch, made monkey bread in a springform pan. Butter seeped out the sides, dripped in the oven, and caught fire. Had to evacuate the brunch guests and finish cooking the food at my friend's house. We still joke about it. I especially appreciate that Sarah continued the brunch at her friend's house. I mean, the show must go on, right? (laughs) Many of us would have called it a day right there, but not Sarah. Mm -hmm. Well, here's another listener, Sarah, with another story involving the fire department. Coincidence? (laughs) This, Sarah says, A couple years ago, I volunteered to bake a ton of stuff for my Works United Way campaign. At the time, I had a tiny apartment with a tiny oven that couldn't even fit a standard-sized cookie sheet. And if I left it on too long, it would lose control and continuously rise in temperature until it was unplugged. So I could only bake one thing at a time and let the oven cool completely before turning it back on again. Needless to say, the prep weekend before the campaign was an absolute chaotic recipe for disaster. At one point, I had a small amount of cookie batter left and didn't want to waste valuable oven space and time, so I threw it into a ramekin and put it in the microwave for a quick treat. I turned around to check on the cookies in the oven and within 20 seconds smelled smoke. The cookie batter in the microwave was literally in flames. It took an hour of fanning to get the smoke alarms to turn off. In all the excitement, I'd forgotten about the cookies in the oven, so they burnt to a crisp and the oven started overheating. My kitchen cabinets were covered in black soot for months. Andrea, after taking all that care with the cookies, it was the microwave that did her in, just like in our next story. Listener Jesse reports, in seventh grade, my friend and I decided to invent a baked good without a recipe. What we created tasted kind of like a peanut butter bagel. We named it Booflo's. However, in the process of the bake, we set the timer on the microwave, but actually turned on the microwave empty for several minutes and came dangerously close to blowing off my friend's little sister's hand when the microwave imploded, exploded, caught on fire. Boom. Oh my gosh. You know, Stefan, after reading these two stories, I'm feeling ever more justified in my decision not to own a microwave. Yes. Dangerous. Finally, we had two listeners utterly traumatized by attempting to make wedding cakes. Listener Kay says she was delivering a wedding cake for her mom's bakery on a 100-plus degree summer day. The ballroom where the reception was to be had was upstairs, and it had a full wall of windows and was not air-conditioned. The bride had requested a poured fondant cake, despite Kay's grandmother telling her there was no way a cake like that would survive a Southern Oregon summer. Luckily, Kay and her mom had the bride sign a disclaimer that if the cake melted, they would not be held responsible. (laughs) Kay says that fondant poured off the sides of the cake, and there's Kay, 17 years old, calling her grandmother in a puddle of hysterical tears. But this story has a happy ending. Kay and her mom and grandma were able to fix the cake with fresh flowers, and it still tasted delicious. And finally, though listener Robert failed at a wedding cake, he speaks for how many of us feel after any baking fail. He says, you know how in movies you see a person sobbing and slowly sliding down the wall to the floor? That was me when I made a wedding cake at home. We so appreciate all of the listeners who took the time to reflect, reminisce, and recommend. The most important ingredient of all may be a sense of humor, and preheaters are well stocked with that. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we're heading to Asia for an entire month of Japanese sweets. With a deep influence from French patisserie, you may be surprised at what's in store. 
Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please rank, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. Preheated Preheated road trip. Road trip. (laughs) Should we do that again?